I got I got a snack and I got some like pickles. So you can have some juicy crunching sounds <laughs> to enjoy as you edit. Stop. <laughs> um hello <laughs> and welcome to a podcast about murder. I'm Freya and I'm here with Jem as usual to spend some time with you discussing some true crime. Jem, are you ready to talk about murder today? I am. Then let's get started. Today we're talking about another serial killer, one I wanted to discuss for a while on the podcast and it's another one of those landmark level household name cases in the UK and this is the murders committed by Harold Shipman, Dr. Harold Shipman from 1974 to 1998. Just a warning that this episode contains um themes of medical malpractice and elder abuse so if any of those if either of those issues are particularly um troubling to you then it's your choice to give this a miss now if you haven't heard of old harold before you need to know that he is britain's most prolific serial killer and one of if not the most prolific serial killer in recorded history the findings initially of the Shipman Inquiry, which was an investigation brought by the British government into the case, concluded that Harold's number of victims sits at a minimum of 215 people over 23 years or so, with a later report finding finding a larger estimate of 250. 250 people. Like... Like, that's an absurd amount of people. It's, a, it's obscene. Like, you, how often do you hear a number like that? Like, you think about the big guns, like Jeffrey Dahmer, Gary Ridgway, Ted Bundy. Mm. And, like, don't get me wrong, like, killing 12 people, killing 15 people is, like, absolutely unbelievable. <laughs> and it's, like, completely shocking. But when you read 215 to 250... It's also, like, over 20 years. Right. Like, how does that happen? For yeah. And you think about how every single one of those is like an individual person with a complete life surrounding them, a family and everything else. It's really hard to comprehend that number. So the reason why it was probably possible for Harold Shipman to commit so many murders in this space of time and to remain undetected for so long is that he was a killer in the poisoner category. Um, He was a doctor who used his position to kill and his method of killing along with his privileged position and access to vulnerable people allowed him to remain well concealed. The thing is, it's like, because I know some of the details of this case, not Mm -hmm. many. So I understand how it's like inconspicuous. At the same time, (laughs) after a while, wouldn't you be like, it's kind of weird that so many people you come into contact with this guy. Well, that's exactly, that's exactly it. Um, after a while, <laughs> but a while was sure. 23 years. <laughs> well, that's the thing though, because if you think about it, that's like 10 people a year, which if you do it like one a month, would you notice yeah. a pattern? Hmm. This is the kind of case where the terror isn't in the violence of the killing. It's the hidden nature of the person who this, this person who's supposed to be caring about you, like the wolf in sheep's clothing kind of aspect. He's the trusted person He's hiding in plain sight, and that's what makes it really scary. But it's someone that you're dependent on. Yeah. Even. 
yeah, you're completely like helpless even at the mm. feet of this person, um, which is actually very, very scary. And as I said, Harold Shipman is not only Britain's most prolific serial killer, but he's actually considered by many to be the most prolific modern serial killer ever. So the USA gets the rap for being the worst serial killing nation, but like take that USA, like, you know, rule Britannia, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> but then who who's up there with him? Who else has killed on this scale? I've got a bit of that later that I'll get to. Okay, we'll get we'll save that for later. Um, so we're going to start off with a bit of background on Harold and how he started out in life to try and get an understanding of like just how you end up this absolutely and truly screwed into oblivion. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Harold Frederick Shipman, who was, he was actually known as Fred or Freddie as a child, was born on January 14th, 1946 in Nottingham, England to working class parents. He's another one of those middle name people. Yeah. Those middle name people like me. I mean, I'm looking at you Outcasts, (laughs) social pariahs, the middle name people. Um, his, his father also named Harold was a lorry driver and his wife, Vera, had four children, of which Harold was the second. The family were devout Methodists. Harold was said to be really close to his mother, Vera. Vera was said to be very dominant as a personality. She was sometimes difficult to deal with. She was an intense person. And you do hear that sometimes in the early lives of male serial killers. This intense mother relationship. A lot of the time, actually. Harold was Vera's favourite child, and she instilled in him a feeling of personal superiority. Um, yeah, but that's the thing. It's like they're always one of many children, but they're the favourite. And that would come to be a major aspect of his personality, this superiority that his mom mm. encouraged. The arrogance Vera encouraged in Harold would be a major barrier to him socially. Um, it would lead to him having difficulty forming friendships and becoming isolated. He achieved adequate grades, but he excelled in sports, rugby, distance running and athletics. His peers, if they remembered him at all, remembered him as a loner who kept to himself. Vera's diagnosis of terminal lung cancer would come as a huge upheaval to Harold in his teens, as it would to anyone. Harold stayed by her side every day after school, watching as her illness wasted away her body. As Vera began to receive palliative or end-of-life care, a doctor would visit the home to alleviate her pain by administering morphine. Young Harold would witness his mother being relieved of her pain in this way by the doctor, and that experience would come to be important in many of his life choices, which we'll come to later. He was mesmerised by the doctor's ability to take pain away with drugs, and I think mm. that's, the, that's the key takeaway. She died in the summer of 1963 when Harold was 17. After his mother died, Harold decided that he was going to attend medical school, um... Although he failed one entrance exam, he eventually enrolled at Leeds University for training. Now 19, Harold would meet his wife, Primrose May Oxterby, who was 17, as they travelled on the same bus route to Leeds. They married on November 5th, 1966, as Primrose was five months pregnant. Harold graduated from Leeds University's School of Medicine in 1970, And after four more years working in a hospital, he took up his first GP position at Abraham Abraham Ormerod Medical Centre in Todmorden. God, these places. (laughs) Where's Todmorden? A market town outside of Leeds. Ah. Um, He was now 28 with two children. 
The Shipman Inquiry would describe the adult Harold Shipman as a man with few friends, just as he had been as a child and teenager. He was conceited, he was arrogant, and he could even be aggressive and rude to other people. The reports noted that these... Go on. But then I'm wondering because he seems so How did he so pass bedside manner? <laughs> yeah. yeah, but also how did he like, I guess she's a bit younger than him, but how did he like even strike up a conversation with this girl Woman, and I, convince I mean, her to marry him? I think part of the marriage was the fact that she'd become pregnant. Um, it's still kind of a long time ago. So that's still yeah. kind of a little frowned upon. So I don't know. <laughs> But people, women have been marrying terrible, terrible men for like a long time. (laughs) The reports uh, about Harold as an adult noted that these traits could have been a kind of cover up for poor self-esteem and possibly the overhyping his mother had brought him up with had caused a deep fear of being inadequate um yeah the reports also stated that harold had a deep hatred of people he thought were less intelligent than himself he struggled with authority he was seen to unnecessarily challenge those who were above his rank he was even said to have argued with speakers as they gave lectures when he disagreed with what they were saying (laughs) um which is pretty extreme in in the medical (laughs) realm as well it's not like yeah a debatable subject really he went out of his way to belittle and embarrass other people yet with patience he had a gentle bedside manner that encouraged their trust so already you can see that he has a character that he can switch on and off yeah um, and he can establish trust with people when he wants to quite easily yeah so Which he's got the whole that thing of like oh he's compensating for feeling inadequate kind of bullshitty to me because it's like if he i mean yes it, that could be an element of it but he's very clearly capable of like not being a dick sure yeah he's detached <laughs> from like real life in a sense harold was not only generally erratic but he was becoming addicted to a drug called pethidine um also known by the brand name demerol which is a heavy mm. opioid painkiller similar to morphine he began forging prescriptions to fuel his addiction attempting to cover up his blackouts by claiming he had epilepsy. Um, Jesus Christ. A detective on the case would later claim that Harold injected heroin into his penis to get high, but I'm <laughs> I'm unclear on whether this is a sensationalised version of events. I as you said that. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, you got to laugh because it's weird, but I'm not sure how true that is or not. Um, I'm not sure if that's just like a sort of sensationalized thing, but that seems like the last place you'd want to stick a needle. It literally seems like like the last place I would inject like, myself with heroin. Yeah. I don't know. Who knows? Like maybe he's onto something that we, <laughs> we don't know about, but it's like heaven. <laughs> this is what he was debating his professor. He was like, no, if you put in the penis, it's so much better. <laughs> I can't reveal how I know this, but trust me. (laughs) Uh, Okay, let's move on from heroin and the penis. Um, Harold's first victim is believed to have been killed during this period while Harold was working in Todd Morden in 1975. Eva Leons was due to turn 71 the day after her murder. 
That same year, colleagues at the practice discovered Harold's secret drug addiction and he lost his job. He went through a rehab program and moved to Hyde, a town in the Manchester area. But Harold wasn't struck off for this. I don't know if this is a phrase that's used in other countries, but in the in the UK when a doctor is prevented from practicing by the General Medical Council, which regulates doctors, we call it being struck off. Um, and two years after his little indiscretion, shall we say, which cost him around £600 in fines, um, he rejoined the medical workforce as a GP <laughs> at the Donnybrook surgery in but I feel like- 1977. In the 70s, you could just get away with anything. Literally. It was not required for any employer or any patient to be informed that Harold had a conviction, um, which is, you know, I'd like to know (laughs) if my doctor had a conviction like that. Although some of the staff at Donnybrook found Harold to be arrogant and unlikable, he worked up a reputation for being hardworking and for being trusted by the patients. And so he was able to get along with colleagues enough that he would stay working as a GP in Hyde for the next 20 years. During that time, he killed 71 patients. Was he still doing drugs at this time or is he like... I'm going to go ahead and say he was definitely doing drugs because like, I mean, he's now started killing people. I I find it unlikely that he's like, yeah, I'll just, I've given up the drug habit, but I've moved on now to like humans. I'm sure he's like still doing drugs. Um, I mean, he learned, you you know, you only learn from that experience, don't you? He's just learned how to hide it better. Exactly. It's obviously not going to be possible to talk through 215 to 250 murders. Um, especially mm. when most of them don't really have that much information on them that's out there, like specifically. So we'll talk about the modus operandi of Harold Shipman in general, and then we'll move on to the discovery of his crimes and the trial. Most of Harold Shipman's victims were found sitting upright in a chair. There would be nothing unusual about the way they were positioned, but they would be fully clothed and they were all at first assumed to have died of natural causes, but they hadn't. Their doctor who they had trusted with their care, had murdered them by giving them a lethal dose of diamorphine, which is to say heroin for pharmaceutical use. He would request large amounts of this drug in the name of his patients. It said he obtained enough diamorphine in the name of one patient to kill 360 people. Jesus Christ. So this wasn't a difficult who thing for him to was obtain. was letting this happen? <laughs> After murdering a patient, Harold would concoct a plausible cause of death to cover up the crime. Sometimes he would even pretend to call the emergency services for help, and he would then alter the medical records to fit with the death that he'd stated. So he'd actually go back and change what was on their chart to make it seem more likely that um, they would have died that way. As a final way to cover his tracks, Harold then convinced the grieving families of many victims to cremate their loved ones. Um, Mm. destroying any potential evidence of what he'd done. And he would also continue to collect their prescriptions after they died. So when you said about, is he doing drugs? I mean, yeah, probably. (laughs) But then my question here is like, who... I guess it's like they know that it's someone that their loved one trusted. Mm. At the same time, I wouldn't be like, oh... My like grandma's doctor says we should cremate her, so I'm I'm sold on that. 
<laughs> like, if I had strong feelings about it either way, that wouldn't be what convinced me. A few of them were buried and that will come back to haunt him, but many of them he was able to convince them. So I guess that would be the people that didn't have a strong feeling about it either way he was able to kind of convince. Harold Chipman continued to take lives in this way unnoticed for over two decades, enacting again and again a bizarre, twisted version of his mother's last days, receiving morphine to ease her pain as she died of cancer. Around 80% of his victims were women, and most were elderly, like Anne Cooper, who would be his oldest victim at 93. So you would say that in some ways that reminds you of his, that his victim profile resembles his mother in a sense. Um, bit older than she would have been, but yeah, that's what I was gonna say. But an in, an incapacitated older woman. I guess also maybe the age that his mum would be. Yeah, had she not died. That's a possibility as well. That's actually a really good point. I hadn't thought of that. But he didn't have a strict victim profile because his he, he had a, his youngest victim was a forty one year old man um, hmm. by the name of Peter Lewis, and he's also suspected of having killed a child of four, but this isn't it's not confirmed that that was a definite one but um you know so i feel like there's still a there's still like an opportunistic streak there by march of 1998 harold was doing well for himself he had founded his own practice in 1993 and he was a respected member of the local community very popular among his elderly patients his conviction in the 70s was basically completely buried he now had four children with his wife primrose but the high rate at which Harold's patients were dying and the similar manner in which they were found, seated in similar positions, was no longer going unnoticed. Um, there are several slightly conflicted stories about how the story began to unravel and who exactly first raised the alarm. But it's known that Deborah Massey of Frank Massey and Sons Funeral Parlour expressed concerns to Dr. Linda Reynolds from the Donnybrook surgery where Harold had previously worked. Linda, who was herself worried about the number of cremation forms Harold was signing, mm. um, in turn passed this on to the coroner for the South Manchester district, John Pollard. Wait, is he in Manchester? No, he's, in, he's, in, he's now he's working in the Manchester area, yeah. But so it's like presumably quite a small community. Um, like, yes, I think so. I mean, he works anyway. outside of the city for sure. Like he works in, um, in a sort of more rural area. Or suburb, you might say. But according to some sources, it was another it was another local undertaker who first became suspicious of Harold. And in fact, this person was brave enough to actually approach Harold directly about the unusual deaths. But Harold dismissed him and said there was nothing to worry about. And he was able to convince the undertaker to drop the matter. So another example of his persuasion. Mm. A colleague of Harold's, Dr. Susan Booth, had also noticed the similarities in the deaths and at, and in the rate that the patients were dying. And she raised concerns also with the local coroner and then with the police. It was noted that Shipman's practice had a death rate that was nearly 10 times higher than the neighbouring practices. Jesus Christ. An investigation began that year, but frustratingly, the police found no evidence that Harold could be charged with committing a crime. Unfortunately, the case wasn't taken particularly seriously. Also, critics would later claim inexperienced detectives were assigned to investigate and they didn't dig into Shipman's past issues with drug abuse, fraudulent prescriptions and dismissal. They had failed to complete even the most basic background check, which would have shown that Harold had a criminal record. Um, that seems like the bare minimum. <laughs> like, a criminal record the bare check. bare minimum is like looking up a person. 
The police didn't contact the General Medical Council to inspect Harold's file, and they didn't even speak to Harold himself or contact any of the families of what the patients who could have been victims. Did they just hang around his office? <laughs> Watch him for like two days. And yeah, he doesn't <laughs> seem to be doing anything. <laughs> Although Harold had signed a lot of similar deaths and cremations, the records themselves appeared to be in order, like they were filled out correctly. So the police didn't know that he had, and the police didn't know that he had a, a history of forgery, oh, which they right, would have yeah. known that he'd forged documents before, so for his yeah. drug addiction. So if they'd have known that, it might have helped them understand that it was possible these documents weren't really in order. So the investigation stalled, leaving Harold free to kill three more people before he was finally found out. It's interesting he didn't stop at all. No. Like he, he clearly wasn't... I guess Very, he wouldn't be. It's a if strong you, if compulsion, If literally the I police guess. have looked into you and they found nothing, yeah. you'd just be like, yeah, cool. <laughs> you keep doing what I'm doing then. It speaks a lot to his compulsion. Yeah, I'd written that next. It speaks a lot to his compulsion to kill or his barefaced confidence, maybe that although there had just been an investigation into him, Harold didn't wait for suspicion to die down at all before he continued to kill. People continued to suspect something was going on. A taxi driver in Hyde, John Shaw, called police to say he believed Harold was killing his patients. Um, I don't know how John figured this out, but he's like, <laughs> he's a taxi driver and he's smarter than the police. Like, Was give he this like man driving like in raise. somewhere and they were just chatting and he just like... He was like, oh, yeah, by the way, I kill my patients. Yeah. <laughs> but no matter how many people tried to expose Harold, it was actually Harold himself who would end up doing so um, with the murder of his final victim, Kathleen Grundy, that year in 1998. Kathleen Grundy was an 81-year-old widow and one of the patients Harold Shipman would visit at home. She was found dead on June 24th, 1998, after a visit from the doctor, of course, during which he'd injected Kathleen with diamorphine. Harold recorded a cause of death of old age on her death certificate and he informed Kathleen's daughter, Angela Woodruff, that no autopsy was required because it was a natural death. And mm. Kathleen, she was buried though. Uh. But Harold had done something very, very brazen with this victim. He knew Kathleen had wealth to her name and he seemed unable to resist a forgery of a frankly ridiculous level, <laughs> he altered Kathleen's will oh to not only include himself as the majority beneficiary. But it's of... like, why? What, like, have you not got enough going on? <laughs> um, he re he not only included himself as the beneficiary of her three hundred and eighty-six thousand pound estate, but actually cut out her children completely. That's just insane. The edited will was sent to her solicitor, Brian Burgess, on the same day she died. Um, which again mm. is like <laughs> It's just getting really stupid at this yeah. point. It read, I give all my estate, money and house to my doctor. My family are not in need, and I want to reward him for all the care he has oh given to God. me and the people of Hyde. Like oh it couldn't be God. more obvious. <laughs> It's just like a joke. And this is supposedly this guy who thinks he's more intelligent than everyone else. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh. but it's also like he's not hard up. I mean, he's a, a successful doctor. Right. He's, he, there, there's no way he like properly needs this money. He just mm. couldn't resist the temptation, I think, of and his forgery. I, th I think after so having good. the police, after having the police investigate and not find anything, I think he just thought 
what the hell I can get away with anything. I guess he also thinks that most other people are stupid as well. So he yeah. thought that no one would like question it. Yeah, he thinks that other people are so stupid that no matter whether he does something that is so that is this idiotic, he can get away mm. with it. The will also arrived with a letter. And the letter read, Dear Sir, I enclose a copy of my will. I think it is clear in intent. I wish Dr. Shipman to benefit by having my estate. But if he dies or cannot accept it, then the estate goes to my daughter. I would like you to be the executor of the will. I intend to make an appointment to discuss this and my will in the near future. So the last sentence is a bit of a feeble attempt to make it less suspicious. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm going to come and talk to you about it. Oh, no, I died. <laughs> so <laughs> so it, like trying to make it less suspicious. And also saying, oh, but if he dies, my daughter can have it. Like trying to make yeah, it sound more like, like her. But it's, it's funny because it kind of, it's like you can actually hear a person who doesn't really understand other people and doesn't understand how people yeah. are thinking that this would sound normal. Yeah. No, definitely. But it also just sounds like something, like, literally, he wrote it as it came into his mind. Yes, yeah. It doesn't seem very well planned out. Um, everything was typewritten, but it was signed by Kathleen. Unluckily for Harold, no one in this situation was as, <laughs> was as completely <laughs> stupid as he seemed to think they would be. <laughs> Kathleen's daughter... Angela was a lawyer and um oh my goodness. That <laughs> so makes it, like that much better yeah like chose the wrong family to fuck with I think um she was dealing with her mother's final affairs and she was shocked to find out that the will had been amended on the day she died to include mm. her doctor and to remove her children Brian encouraged Angela to go to the police and finally the case was on the move and being taken very seriously Kathleen's body was exhumed and an autopsy found that she had died of a morphine overdose, taken three hours before her death, the exact time that Harold Shipman had visited her. Oh, so it's quite a slow, or not, I mean, not that slow, but it's like, it gives him enough time to like not be there at the time yes, of yeah. death. Yeah, exactly. Harold, when confronted, kept spinning more lies, claiming Kathleen was a drug addict and showing them notes he'd made on her medical files as evidence. But these notes had been made digitally, so police mm. could tell that this guy had added them after she died. So he really is, he thinks everyone is so dumb. <laughs> That's my only I explanation. Guess it's also like he can't keep up with the times, I feel like. Yeah, maybe like he doesn't back understand. In the day, he was a real smooth see. criminal. Yeah. And now it's like. <laughs> No, we can see that you've edited this document like <laughs> two hours ago. This was edited just before you arrived. <laughs> <laughs> On September 7th, 1998, Harold Shipman was finally arrested. The nail in his proverbial coffin, a fingerprint found on the will, matched him. So, mm. I mean, there was no possible room for doubt there. Yeah. Um, police were sure that this was not Harold's only victim, and as the bodies that were not cremated were exhumed, the pattern of diamorphine overdoses and death certificates with fabricated illnesses began to emerge. There were 15 bodies that police could physically prove had been killed with diamorphine, and so those were the murders that Harold was charged with when he appeared at trial on 5th of October 1999. They were Marie West, Irene Turner, Lizzie Adams, Jean Lilly, Ivy Lomas, Muriel Grimshaw, Marie Quinn, Kathleen Wagstaff, Bianca Pomfrey, Nora Nuttall, Pamela Hillier, Maureen Ward, Winifred Mallor, or Mella, Joan Melia, and Kathleen Grundy. All of these women died in a three-year period between 1995 and 98. 
The trial lasted until the end of January 2000. Deliberation took six days before a jury arrived at a guilty verdict. He received a sentence of 15 consecutive life sentences with a recommendation... I you were going to say 15 years, and I was like, that is <laughs> shocking. Yeah, he's out. He's coming to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, with a recommendation never to be released. Um, so, like, so in this country, you can not like in america they can put you in prison they go just like it's life without the possibility of parole but for us and and in canada it's a bit more like a suggestion it's a bit more like like the sentence is a maximum of 25 years but the recommendation is oh, right. that you shouldn't come out probably <laughs> so they're going to review it at mm. the 25 years and see what's happened then he received he also received charges for the forgery of the will four years um, home secretary at the time david blunkett formally agreed to the recommendation that shipman would never be released in 2002 comically harold shipman was then struck off by the medical council which is just like kind of funny finally, at that like, point <laughs> like it wasn't fucking obvious like it's like yeah anymore. oh yeah you're definitely struck off now <laughs> Um, Shipman remained insistent that he was innocent. In prison, when encouraged to talk about his crimes, he would become emotional and tearful but would refuse to speak. He disputed the scientific evidence, as did his wife, Primrose, who attended court in support of him. She continued to visit him in Wakefield Prison and to write loving letters to him. So she didn't seem to... I guess she believed him. Which... But, like, do you think he believes himself? Like, do you think he genuinely thinks that he's innocent? It's so, it's so interesting. It's such a, like, it's such a weird one because I just, I couldn't say what's going on. And he's never given, like, more information. Like, he won't mm. say to anyone. Um, so it's a weird one. But on January 13th, 2004, Harold Shipman was found hanging from the window bars of his cell by bedsheets um, the day before his 58th birthday. Um, so we'll never know, like, more about it from him mm. um some victims families expressed their disappointment which is interesting considering what we were saying in episode two about you know the death penalty and yeah. what's the most appropriate punishment because these families were saying that they felt cheated they felt cheated out of the justice of seeing harold spend the rest of his life sitting in a cell yeah. rotting away and the chance to get a confession from him that could bring them some emotional closure in so the, the future. whole time he's just denied everything. Yes, and then his final sort of... It's almost like a final fuck you is like, and I'm not going to follow your fucking... Mm. Uh, so it's not like there's no suspicion that someone else did this to him? No. <laughs> <laughs> the British public were divided between those who celebrated and those who were frustrated as Shipman's suicide. Um, though, so you know, it's still that kind of thing, and of course, our great British tabloids summed up the divided mood as usual. The Sun ran the headline "Ship Ship Hooray," <laughs> and encouraged other murderers to top themselves. Oh my god! <laughs> I mean, it's just funny. We have like newspapers in this country that just openly like kill yourself, <laughs> while the Mirror <laughs> condemned the prison services for being ne negligent and forgiving Harold, who they branded a coward, the opportunity to take his own life. It's thought by some that Harold timed his suicide to benefit his wife Primrose, as he died before the age of sixty. Primrose was entitled to collect a full NHS pension 
of £10,000 a year and also a lump sum of £100,000. Although Harold himself wasn't, like, he'd been stripped of his own pension, but that didn't, mm. but the rules didn't quite, like, you know, she was still entitled so to take that to money. to be thinking of stuff like that in <laughs> this context. <laughs> like, I don't know. Famous FBI profiler John Douglas has said that because serial killers are usually obsessed with manipulation and control, killing themselves in custody can be seen as a final act of control over their circumstances. Mm. So motive, Harold Shipman never made any statements affirming his guilt, so he never explained his motive um, or anything like that. So in his past, I see a trauma that many people experience. Lose, like you said, losing a parent um, it as, as not a slightly older age, but... But still at an age where you wouldn't expect to lose your parent. Yeah, of, of course. But it's something that many people do experience and go on to live a normal life. Yeah, um, no one else is out there killing people. <laughs> and like <laughs> injecting heroin into their penises. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 70, like I get, you know, late. It's an intense time in your life. 17. Yeah. Um, it's like the last thing... Well, it's the last thing anyone needs, but I sure. feel especially you at 17, need you've guidance got so much from your on. parents at that age, I think. But um, I don't see, like we do in so many other serial killing cases, a particularly bizarre home life that's filled with something like violence or verbal or physical yeah. abuse, neglect or trauma. But there's that intense relationship with his mom that definitely yeah, contributes. But again, that's like it's an. I guess that's why the reaction to her death is so extreme. Mm. But other than that, it's not necessarily abusive. No. Uh, Motive was part of the inquiry conducted by Dame Janet Smith. And she wrote in her report that, quote, I regret to say that I can shed very little light on why Shipman killed his patients. There is some evidence that he is an addictive personality and it's possible that killing was a form of addiction. She studied his life in detail for a year and chaired the inquiry which resulted in six volumes of reports the first of which was 336 pages long oh my god but she didn't provide a motive obviously there was financial gain involved with his last victim but most cases there was no gain uh in well, that I feel sense. like otherwise people would have noticed sure sooner that aspect to me seemed like it was just like a nice bonus and on the last one like it was just like yeah well i mean she's wealthy like why wouldn't i try yeah um he doesn't have any empathy he's getting bolder and bolder so it's something that he can just do because he's just smarter than everyone else you know like it's just like yeah well i can just do this whatever it's like it's not something that's a motive it's more like that's a nice add-on yeah i don't see it as like i mean at this point i don't think that's what's like driving him leading and driving him to like kill this woman for motive i do think the way his mother died is is extremely important it reminds me of dennis nelson um the serial killer that we covered in our very first episode seeing his grandfather dying from being at sea and somehow creating this weird um like i don't know what to call it but it's like like a block in your head that you can't get past so it's like they see this important person in their life die in this certain way and it's so traumatic that they just become like stuck in that moment for the rest of their life trying to like replay the scene through whatever murder trying to make sense of it yeah because didn't he like wasn't his grandfather laid out for a while or something and he saw him also weird about it yeah it was it was like they had a weird he just had a weird relationship with death and stuff like that and he sort of like mingled it with like the love that he felt and 
the uh, loneliness. He was also very young. Yeah, like, really young. He was way younger than... Oh, yeah, he was like shipment. six, I want to say. Maybe a bit older. Mm. But, yeah, but it's like it's like an attempt to replay the scene. It's like an attempt to control the situation. Um, it's some. Um, it's like an attempt to get over it, but they can't get over the line and start, like, moving forward. Um, yeah, because you're just sort of stuck in this loop of... Yeah, I, I don't playing. think it's the case for all serial killers, but I think it's something in their past. Um, they're coping with it by becoming the aggressor in the scenario. And, yeah, like, Dennis Nelson like... is, like, my grandfather, who I loved, went to sea, died of a heart attack. The sea took him, metaphorically, and, like, now he starts killing people, and a lot of the time he's using water or he's choking them. So it's like, yeah. I am the sea. You know, like... It's also, like, there's no... You can't hold any person accountable for his grandfather's death. And then him trying to be a controlling yeah. force of death. Right, exactly. And that's such and that's an interesting parallel and then because we have Harold Shipman who sees his mum dying of a disease that you can't do anything about that. You know, it's ca- his cancer has killed her. There's nothing there's no justice there. That's just something that happens that's really unfair. Mm. And he's seeing the power the doctor has to take her pain away with drugs. But ultimately she dies. So to deal with it, he becomes that power, the doctor. He becomes the person that he felt had the most control in the scenario. And he's like, the way I'm dealing with this is I'm becoming the power to take back, like, the control that I've lost in that moment that I can never get back because I can never bring my mom back, but I can be dead. And if I'm controlling it, like I know how and when it's going to happen. Right. Exactly. And so they become the death that stole from mm. them to try and reclaim a little bit of power and that's just my that's my thoughts on the motive there it's a, it's a yeah. psychological motive as opposed to a true motive of gain as like we've already pointed out like once it becomes a habit and he's got an addicted like he's got a problem with addiction once it becomes a thing once it becomes something you can just do you it would just like take on this whole scale of like it's just a part of your life now Mm. Like injecting heroin into your penis. <laughs> <laughs> so normal. Uh, and this kind of lines up with what Dame Janet is saying in her report when she says, he liked to play the role of master of ceremonies after a death. He would be the center of attention and he would take control and he would present himself as omniscient. Mm. Um so some people suggest that with the knowledge that Harold was raised to believe he was superior, he simply liked to play God and he couldn't resist the feeling of power and control that that gave him after he tried it a few times. There are also people who believe he thought he was doing the NHS or the taxpayer a favour um, by removing elderly people from taking state resources. I guess it's so hard to know mm. what he thought about anything. But, but that delusion bit... has a level of compassion in it. Yeah. And I don't think that, although, I mean, obviously it's not com- necessarily compassionate, but it would require him to empathise with the taxpayers, with the, with the it would require him to it think of other people. It would require him doing anything for anyone else. Yes, right. And I just don't believe that's possible. So I'm not buying that one. I don't buy that from his behavior no. or his personality in any way. So there are a couple of serial killers from South America, Luis Garavito and Pedro Lopez, who have some estimates placing their murders as high as 300, um, which is absolutely what? insane. How? Through like and a similar thing? 
No, it's uh, it's more insane because those were directly violent crimes. Jesus. So you just can't believe they got away with it, but you sort of can in context. But that's maybe that's another story, perhaps for another time. But they have estimates of three hundred or even more murders, but they aren't confirmed. Um, their proven victims are still at like I won't say they're only, but they're at one hundred and thirty-eight and one hundred and ten in confirmed murders. So they aren't even touching Harold though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be fair, and the thing is, Harold actually has his own highball estimate which is somewhere around 450. The highest number I found that was attributed to Harold Shipman was 459. But Dame Janet Smith's inquiry concludes that we may never know the true scope of Harold Shipman's crimes, and experts believe he could have started killing at a much earlier stage, possibly as soon as he obtained his medical license. It's like, how do you just start something like that? I guess, in a way, it's easy, because it's such a non-violent mm. death it's quite easy to sort of slip into that habit, especially if you've got a problem. Speak if you're for injecting yourself. yourself with drugs. <laughs> I don't know that it's easy. <laughs> no, it's like if you're already injecting yourself with drugs, injecting others with slightly more drugs isn't too far of a step. Right. The Harold Shipman case had a lasting effect on medical practice in the UK. The Shipman inquiry exposed many failings in standards of monitoring and regulation in medicine, from lax controls on drugs to poor monitoring in certifying deaths and cremations. The Shipman inquiry reports made a number of recommendations and the government's subsequent plan of action adopted many of the proposed reforms. These included changes to the coroner system, better controls on the usage of drugs like diamorphine, improvements on the death certificate process and changes to the way doctors would be monitored. In one report, the General Medical Council was accused of being too concerned with protecting doctors at the cost of protecting patients. So there were also changes in how the GMC worked. There are also nowadays very few GP practices that are just one GP, like Harold had, um, working alone. Because and this is because of this reason because because you need someone was, to be checking up on he you. was basically had total impunity from the second he set up his own practice yeah he killed the majority of his patients in the nineties at his own practice as recently as early two thousand and nine there are still family members of the victims who are seeking compensation for the loss of loved ones at the hands of Harold Chipman. Harold Shipman has been the subject of numerous TV dramatizations, songs, references in other popular culture. A memorial garden to his victims called the Garden of Tranquility opened in Hyde Park on 30th. I've written Hyde Park brackets Hyde. And I wonder if maybe I've written that because it wasn't the London one. But maybe well, I guess maybe a Hyde in Park in Hyde, Hyde. Where he worked. I guess it would be. I mean, it makes sense. If there's a park in Hyde. <laughs> it makes more sense. I'd imagine it's called Hyde Park. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> On 30th of July, 2005 is when that happened. So that's it for the case of Harold Chipman. That's a big one. It's interesting to have a case where the killer hasn't ever spoken out yeah, about it. Yeah, and you're just left to guess. And it's someone who's killed so many people and you just have a complete guess, yeah. you know, about what is the situation there. Weird also that his wife supported him. Yeah, very weird. But imagine being his kid. Yeah, I don't know. I imagine they probably changed their names. But that's it. So thank you for listening to A Podcast About Murder. Don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at A Podcast About Murder, Twitter at About Murder, Facebook at A Podcast About Murder with no E, and on YouTube you can search channels for A Podcast About Murder. 
we look forward to having with you having with you nice we look forward to having you having with you another conversation <laughs> we look forward to having you with us again same time next week have a great weekend don't do heroin don't put heroin in your penis <laughs> or, so no, or actually yeah actually don't if you can help it <laughs>